to say it makes me furious when I read all these analyses based on the very tip of the iceberg, which is all that we have that's public. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to The ER. Joining me in Washington today are Sarah Wildman, FP's Deputy Editor for Print, and Susan Glasser, Politico's Chief International Affairs Columnist and host of The Global Politico. Susan is also the former Editor-in-Chief at Foreign Policy, so we're particularly happy to have her today. Susan, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) The past year of the Trump administration has been marked by scandal and drama, including a special counsel investigation into Russian meddling in the election and possible collusion by the Trump campaign with Kremlin operatives. Last week, special counsel Robert Mueller released his indictment of 13 Russians involved in interfering in the 2016 election. And the reaction is not unexpected. Trump's critics view this as a smoking gun or something close to it, while his supporters are pointing out that there's no obvious evidence of actual collusion in the indictment. Susan, you've covered the Trump drama from the very beginning. What do these indictments tell you about where the investigation is going and what's going on? <laughs> well, first of all, Sharon, thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It, it is fantastic to be with foreign policy and to see what everyone has has done with it. Uh, it's it's definitely a project near and dear to my heart, and I'm delighted that you guys are doing so much great journalism here. So thank you for having me. Uh, I believe this is my first appearance on the ER. <laughs> You know, one thing I've learned, and I hope we've all learned a little bit when it comes to this Mueller investigation, is to take a deep breath and to beware of pundits bearing answers when it comes to a major criminal investigation on multi-fronts with multi-characters, multi-countries in the middle of the way through. We could be at the end of the beginning. We could be at the beginning of the end. We could be, you know, pick your metaphor, you know, in the first quarter or in the third. We don't know. And I I actually, I have to say, it makes me furious when I read all these analyses based on uh, the, the very tip of the iceberg, which is all that we have that's public. Uh, that being said, I thought everybody should read the indictment. I thought it was a very clear document. Uh, I've been recommending it to people. I was just on a a public radio show in Connecticut. I said, you know, it's not complicated, folks. Like, you can get it online. It walks you through in pretty clear and stark detail this particular piece of the puzzle that Mueller has surfaced for us the other day. And I think it's almost like a guide to how to use and abuse uh, American social media platforms uh, to create a political campaign. There were two things striking about the indictment for me um, that sort of maybe reinforces both sides of the debate. One is the actual dollar amount of a million dollars a month. That was a lot more than what I've seen publicly confirmed and frankly was surprising to me. But the other side of it, um, and this was actually pointed out in something that was missed, um, the Washington Post published an interview over the weekend with the two Russian journalists who first wrote about the Troll Factory, this famous internet research agency in Russia responsible for this. And And they pointed out that a lot of the people named in the indictment are lower level people. So what do you think of those two facts, that that the money was a lot, but another, at least in this indictment, it's a lot of lower level people? Well, look, I think, first of all, this was a way for Mueller to put these facts in in effect into the public record. And I don't think anybody expects that these lower level uh, Russian trolls are going to be standing trial in the United States anytime soon, right? They're safely uh, inside the uh, boundaries, presumably the Russian Federation, and we're not going to see them here. So this is a way of putting this evidence out there, number one. Number two, I think that uh, there's some confusion about, oh, is this just a private company? Is this, uh, you know, how close is this really to the Kremlin? I think it's important to clear up 
that although it's not stated explicitly in this indictment, your listeners should not be under any illusion. This is a Kremlin operation. The uh, owner and leader of this internet research agency known as uh, the Kremlin's caterer, uh, and you may be saying, why on <laughs> earth chef. is a caterer? Right? It conjures to mind, right, like some, you know, sort of hobbyist cook turned business person. No. No, no. This is this is a, a person. Is this is a, a an oligarch, a, a fabulously wealthy person who owes his wealth and position to Vladimir Putin and to no one else. He is an agent of the Kremlin, as someone said. The Kremlin's caterer does not have an independent foreign policy, folks. Okay, <laughs> he's doing this at the behest of Russian intelligence. Mueller has not, and may never, we don't know, given us more evidence that gets to the question of how directly was Putin commanding and controlling this operation. But I don't think there's there's anyone who seriously thinks this was an independent corporate operation. The, the other thing I wanted to flag quickly before we go on to other subjects is that the timing in this indictment is very interesting. And it suggests, finally, it starts to give us a little bit more understanding of why and how the Russians launched this election influence operation inside the United States. This started in early 2014, basically, right. uh, in the spring of 2014. What was happening in the spring of 2014? Russia invaded Crimea, took it over by force. It was the first such armed takeover and annexation of territory, basically, since the end of World War II in Europe. And they also launched an effort really to destabilize uh, the east part of Ukraine in a low-grade civil war, which continues to this day. The United States reacted very strongly to this takeover and imposed serious sanctions on Russia. And it, it marked a significant rupture in an already troubled relationship. And so what we didn't know at the time, but now we know, is that Putin clearly decided to really escalate his unseen attacks on the United States at exactly this moment. Well, let me actually ask Sarah a question, because I've been debating this all weekend with colleagues. Now that we can also tie some of the content that the troll factory was pushing out, particularly trying to sort of foment racial hatred and or anti-Hillary Clinton ads, I mean, you've seen some of that. Do you think that actually swayed anybody when you look at the amount of spending or actual sort of what goes on on social media. When you've looked at what is now being tied to the Russians, do you think that was influential? I think it gets back to these questions that I've been looking at for the last year or two on amplifiers. And I think this question of the way certain messages are amplified and has changed dramatically. I mean, that this is something that's sort of incontrovertible, right? I mean, we we are seeing we are seeing both our echo chambers and what we see in the ways in which we absorb news and our loss of peripheral vision in the way that we are absorbing news more and more from Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds that are being tailored for our specific choices and clicks. In that respect, I think that that may have had an impact. I haven't researched enough how these specific bots contributed to that, but I'm struck by the fact that immediately after the mass shooting last week, there were Russian bots that came out on both sides. That in some respects, again, it's about spreading disinformation, it's about spreading discord, and it's about ramping up the controversies. And in that respect, we're certainly seeing that. And this is actually what gets to something that I wanted to ask Susan about, which is that you just had uh, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter on, and he kind of gave you two scoops. One was that right after Crimea, he had created a war plan for Russia for the first time since the Cold War. And I want you to talk about that a bit. And he also said that he felt that this spread of disinformation was far worse than the KGB 
meddling of the 80s or 70s of the Cold War era, of which we were quite concerned about. Well, you know, I'm really glad you picked up on that because I was also a little bit surprised. This is uh, in an interview for for my podcast, The Global Politico, this week. I was also a little bit surprised that he said what he said specifically was that he did think this Russian meddling was far more serious than the old ham-fisted KGB uh, playbook that he remembered from the Cold War era. And I was struck by that, too, uh, because certainly we had a sense that uh, the KGB was involved in U.S. domestic politics uh, uh, at that time as well. I think what he means is, you know, goes back to the power and potency uh, of social media, right? You know, Russia, it's almost like a dream for them uh, that Facebook and Google and Twitter have created these incredible platforms that allow them direct, low-cost, verging on no-cost access uh, to targeted demographic segments of uh, the American public who they would have had to spend, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to reach in any kind of effective way at the height of the Cold War. And now here it is that we've basically handed them the keys to direct, intimate uh, connection with them to offer whatever propaganda they want. So I, my guess is that, that that's part of why he thinks it's it's more effective and potent uh, of a weapon now. Uh, it, ironically, it's a weapon we ourselves invented. Going to the point about the war plan for Russia, I was really, again— I didn't go in. I should have clearly asked him about it. But actually, he volunteered this information. And it's interesting in what context. I said, Mr. Secretary, have we done enough to respond to Russia? Not surprisingly, he said no. And he was very critical of both the Obama administration in which he served as well as the Trump administration. And I said, well, what's the toughest thing that we could do to Russia right now that we haven't done? And then that's when he replied, well, actually, you know, we— have a war plan in place uh, that's the first such war plan since the end of the Cold War when we thought the collapse of the Soviet Union meant we didn't have to do this. For basically for two decades, we had no plans that were really reasonable or in active shape at the Pentagon to counter Russian aggression. We just, it wasn't our narrative. It wasn't on our radar. And uh, it was immediately after Crimea, basically, and in the context of the ongoing fighting in Ukraine and also the Russian intervention in the Syrian civil war uh, that Carter came in. He was confirmed as Secretary of Defense in early 2015. This war plan we were now learning was developed. So right around the same time that the Kremlin is mounting this information operation, we basically issued, a, a, you know, broadcast the call inside the Pentagon and said, suit up, dudes, uh, you know, give me a 21st century uh, version of the fold the gap. I think it's also speaks to something that you and Sharon were just asking me, which is that we're also at this moment where all of a sudden experts mean nothing, right? And all of a sudden we have this wide open field where you can get your information from anyone. I mean, look at the vaccine debate, if you take it outside of defense. If you look at the vaccine debate, the fact that it has received these pops, you know, based on on false science is in part because we all of a sudden read whatever we want to read, whatever's funneled to us. But, you know, you just spoke to something around the Russian meddling in Syria. You know, what? how much did the discord between Kerry and Carter play a role in in us not paying attention to the rise of Russia? Well, you know, I was really thinking a lot about this, actually, when I was trying to, to write up uh, this interview with, with Ash Carter. And, you know, like a lot of you probably, I didn't pay that much attention to something that in hindsight seems kind of amazing to me. So here we are in September 
of 2016, early September, uh, and really over that summer. So it's the summer when Donald Trump becomes the nominee of the Republican Party. There's the DNC hacking, and uh, the emails are released uh, in the middle of the convention. Basically, the DNC chair is forced out. So we know already that there's this Russian meddling. Now, there's a big fight inside the Obama administration about publicly blaming it on Russia. But basically, instantly, uh, you know, news reporting and, and everyone had a pretty clear sense that it was linked to Russia, the DNC hacking. Uh, and meanwhile, in a super secret way that we didn't know at the time, but we now know, President Obama is receiving these bombshell intelligence reports, super, not even just top secret, so secret, according to the Washington Post reporting, they withheld it from his presidential daily brief and, you know, delivered it in an eyes only, you know, folder in August to President Obama saying, you know, the Russians did this, we have the proof, this is an ongoing attack on our election in the middle of the election season. All the Russia hands who I know from years earlier, just from, you know, having been a correspondent in Moscow and, and followed the issue inside the government, they're blinking red. They're trying to get attention. They're arguing with their colleagues uh, pretty strenuously, almost all of them, saying we got to do more. And then, boom, here's Secretary of State John Kerry trying to negotiate at the same time with the Russians on both a ceasefire in Syria, you know, again, Kerry nobly in many minds, uh, kept trying even when the chances of succeeding were slim to none, but also proposing to his colleagues that, oh, well, the Russians want us to do joint operations against terrorists on the ground in Syria. And the Pentagon flips out, Ash Carter is flipping out. And Obama, to me, this is really kind of an incredible moment. Obama already knows about the Russian hacking. He already knows a lot of other things. He doesn't shut this down. He doesn't say to Kerry, I'm sorry, you know, this is just not going anywhere. They play this out all summer long in a major intramural bureaucratic battle that, although it didn't get that much attention, was a significant issue. In September, it culminates in the very first week of September 2016, we now know, with uh, a heated conference call. Ash Carter talked with me about it in which basically he says, no way, no how, you know, whatever, over my dead body. We're not going to be working with the Russians and sharing secret military information with them in Syria. The same week that Obama goes to a world summit in China, pulls Vladimir Putin aside and says, we know about your hacking and you better knock it off or we're going to get, you know, really, really serious with you. I just find this unbelievable. And where does that leave us now? <laughs> well, actually, let me use that to segue to another thing. You've written a lot about the relationship going into the Trump administration between Defense Secretary Mattis, Secretary of State Tillerson, and H.R. McMaster, and also some of the rifts between them. Can you talk about that relationship right now, both in the context of even Russia, but also just their entire relationship and how they're dealing with Trump? Well, look, as, as our previous discussion suggests, uh, every national security and foreign policy team uh, has uh, rifts in every administration, whether they're policy or ideological or personal or usually some combination thereof. Of course, that that's, that's not new or original to the Trump administration. That's important to say. Remember the battles royale between Condoleezza Rice and Dick Cheney. I mean, this is not uncommon, number one. However, we have an extraordinary situation that directly bears on why we're not doing more uh, on Russia, where in this administration, you basically have a situation where the president's top advisors, their main rift 
is with the president himself. Yeah. Uh, you know, now there there is more, I think, intramural jockeying and rivalry than had been previously understood last year. Right for a while, there was this notion that there was an axis of adults, and the these grown ups were somehow like this league of superheroes who would join hands and save us. You know, it, it was uh, sort of a fairy tale. Yeah, in some but ways. it was a fairy tale, yeah. and uh, you know, so it is true, certainly, that in Jim Mattis at the Pentagon, Rex Tillerson at State. H.R. McMaster and John Kelly in the White House, you have very experienced people who've, who've risen in large organizations and certainly bring a lot more knowledge and depth to these questions than, than the president himself or his largely untested political team. However, uh, A, the way that Trump governs uh, his own team and his own staff combined with perhaps their personalities, they're already fighting with each other in ways we didn't get. So you have, uh, you know, one very senior Republican said to me late last year for for a magazine piece I did, uh, you know, it's a snake pit. And it's not just uh, Trump versus uh, Tillerson, uh, which has been public, or Trump versus McMaster. We saw that just this weekend with the president rebuking McMaster for uh basically being too tough on Russia. Uh, but it's also McMaster versus Tillerson, uh, which was something that surprised me Can when you I talk about that did a little some bit? reporting. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, right? If uh, this is almost like a... Uh, a courtier system. Uh, President Trump, it, you know, rules uh, like a very capricious uh, czar in some ways. <laughs> Nobody knows who really has authority, so they're all jockeying for his attention and his ear and his um, uh, uh, agreement with their preferred policy. So they're very jealous of, uh, you know, who's getting to make the, the decisions and present the national security options. That seems to be part of it. Uh, McMaster, I was also told, you know, really tried to impose a more traditional uh, kind of interagency process and uh, may have run up against Tillerson or Tillerson and Mattis basically operating in such a united front that he thought it undercut uh, his ability to have a more regular order process. You know, we certainly have been told, uh, and I think that seems correct from what I can tell that Mattis and Tillerson have agreed from the beginning of the administration to try wherever possible to be on the same page, not to go to the White House with their disagreements. They seem to meet regularly in person. uh, And uh, more or less, I would say their counsel has been quite similar and and often very divergent from the policy recommendations of our desires of President Trump. I mean, Mattis, it just amazes me. He, I mean, you know, McMaster has survived, but he's rebuked publicly on Twitter. You know, Tillerson, the the disagreements with Trump are, are legendary. But Mattis really seems to have cut this line where he's able to say things that are perhaps not provocative, but telling, but in a way that doesn't seem to rile Trump. Trump. How has he done that? Well, it's fascinating. Uh, he is, in many ways, the most interesting character and yet the most cipher-like character of this administration in, in terms of the national security team. Partially, as someone pointed out, uh, he's blessed by having a job that is uh, far away from the White House, on the other side of the river. Uh, mm-hmm. It's McMaster's job to find a way to interact with President Trump. He's found that clearly to be a big challenge. And by all reports, they do not have a good personal chemistry. Mattis, I think, day in and day out, is able to avoid Trump and some of the more toxic personal dynamics, number one. Number two, Trump does seem to respect him. Uh, you know, there's a certain element, perhaps, and of pride. He continues to refer to Mattis as he did as recently as uh, his appearance at the World Economic Forum, where he called him my general. <laughs> uh, so perhaps that's Trump's way of asserting his superiority. I'm sure he 
my guess is that he doesn't like it that everybody uh, uh, calls Mattis kind of the one grown up in the room or the bulwark of sanity. Uh, I'm sure Trump resents that on some level, but it seems that he has not— uh, doesn't feel that he has the ability at this moment in time to challenge him. I wonder if you can look at the way in which Trump challenges his interlocutors on Twitter. I mean, we, <laughs> we are seeing him. He undermines them again and again. Obviously, first of all, the Twitter feed itself, I'd love you to address, because it is unique to this administration. It is a window into his soul. Amazing. I'm convinced. It's all in, huh? I mean, <laughs> it is. I mean, in a way, we've never had yeah. a window so direct into what a, I, I believe the Twitter is what Trump thinks on a day to day basis. Absolutely. It's an intelligence gold mine, obviously, <laughs> for any foreign government or for anyone like us journalists trying to understand uh, what's really going on. I, I believe it is uh, uh, a window into a troubled mind. <laughs> but it thwarts democracy. Yeah. I mean, democracy. It thwarts diplomacy. Of course, Perhaps it, does. it thwarts democracy as well. No, but that's it's annihilated diplomacy. Uh, no one is able on some level to speak for the United States anymore except for Trump. And in fact, even when you have teleprompter Trump versus Twitter Trump, you know, uh, uh, people now believe Twitter Trump to be the real Trump. And so even teleprompter Trump uh, doesn't really speak for the United States in a way that I think uh, has very amazing and, you know, worrisome long-term consequences for the country. Uh, And so, you know, This question again and again emerges, you guys I'm sure grapple with it all the time, this question of, well, what is the foreign policy? You know, should we look at the actions or should we look at the tweets? Mm -hmm. And uh, A, my view is that, uh, you know, any foreign policy spin, and that's what it is, uh, and it comes from H.R. McMaster, by the way, as well as his lieutenants uh, inside and outside of the government, they basically make this argument to people, well— just don't pay attention to the president. My view is that's ridiculous. And uh, any uh, view of American foreign policy that basically takes as its starting point that we should ignore the president uh, is not going to be an argument that is really sustainable in the long term. A, we've invested enormous decision-making powers in our executive, and those tend to be the decisions that come to him, uh, to any president, are the ones that are the most difficult to make. Uh, And then B, uh, in this particular president, has already shown that that is more or less a ridiculous argument. Why? Well, because he's shown that he's willing to uh, take those tweets and operationalize them and turn them into action and to overrule these adults in the room that he's hired over and over again on very significant issues. And so, again, this isn't just a question of like kind of virtual provocations that have no resonance in the real world, quite the opposite. You recently actually took a look back at Trump's first year of presidency. Um, You were sort of Donald Trump's year of living dangerously. And you come to a very pessimistic conclusion. Um, You write, so what the hell is going on? I've come to believe that when it comes to Trump and the world, it's not better than you think. It's worse. And you you kind of refer to a group called the reassurers. (laughs) Can you talk about what they are and and what they believe and also what led you to this rather pessimistic conclusion? Well, uh, you know, I I still feel like I'm I'm on pretty safe ground. Uh, I wrote that in late December. Uh, I would say events since then have only tended to, to underscore uh, that 
that analysis, in my view. The reassurers are the people I was just talking about. They're they're inside the administration, uh, people like H.R. McMaster and those who work for him who basically have spent a lot of time going around to, to foreign policy audiences here in Washington. They were just at the Munich Security Conference over the weekend, and they're making this argument basically, don't worry so much about the Trump show, the inflammatory rhetoric, the tweets. Underneath that, he's running a pretty solid, certainly not radical foreign policy, and it's uh, you know just an overheated conversation. Let's just stop wailing, moaning, and gnashing our teeth, in effect, and try to influence the actions where we can. That would be the argument of these folks. And you think that is not <laughs> that's falling apart rather quickly? <laughs> well, look, I think I, I I respect it. I understand it. Um, my guess is that if any one of us was in that position, some version of that is is what one would say because it is their job uh, to provide reassurance. That is basically, I think Jim Mattis has said that uh, that's uh, what he signed up to do <laughs> is to go around the world and offer reassurance and handholding uh, to allies. So you know, I don't I don't fault them for making this argument. Uh, uh, there's obviously different versions of it. Some of them are more ideological than others. And I think some of the reassurers are people like, for example, Senator Tom Cotton, the Arkansas hardliner Republican, who see in Trump, uh, because he's relatively speaking not ideological Trump and relatively speaking kind of an empty vessel on some of these issues, an opportunity to uh, accomplish a lot of their agenda in working through him or working through those around him. And, and in some ways, they're, they're succeeding at that. So there's another category of, of reassurers who happen to be the people who are seeing the opportunity to shape and mold the Trump administration toward their ends. One of the things I'm concerned about, and it's in your story too, is is the outflow of seasoned career diplomats, State Department employees, uh, politicos who have worked through Republican and Democratic administrations for decades who are leaving now. And so the infrastructure of knowledge seems to be disintegrating. And I wonder if you can address that a bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously that's been a big theme, running theme of the first year. Uh, that is one of the bases on which, you know, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, has received a lot of criticism and a lot of people scratching their heads and saying, like, on the one hand, from a policy point of view, Tillerson has turned out to be a pretty solid ally of Mattis's. He seems to be in favor of a more or less conventional mainstream Republican foreign policy. Certainly, he and Mattis seem to be counseling Trump against some of the more inflammatory decisions and rhetoric he's used. But then on the other hand, uh, no one can quite figure out why Tillerson has come in and seemed to go to war on the bureaucracy of the State Department itself and on uh, the staff who were there to advise him and to work with him. We are now uh, more than a year into the administration. There are astonishing numbers of vacancies, in, including ambassadorships and key policy positions for almost all the running crises in the world uh, are without key officials. So I, I think it's been a hemorrhaging that will have uh, an effect, by the way, on our American diplomacy long after Trump is gone. You can't just replace uh, the equivalent of a, a two or three star general in, in the American Foreign Service, which is the level of a lot of these people who are leaving. You can't just grow new ones in a couple years after the Trump administration is over. There's two things that are striking for me about Tillerson. One is that he's still there because there were a lot yes. of predictions he'd be out at the end of the year. So that's one. And the second is, do you think there have 
has been, in terms of dealing with the bureaucracy, a learning curve. He has started to scale back these suggestions of a wide-scale reorganization. Do you think that's a recognition that either it can't be done or perhaps it shouldn't be done and that he is losing talent or something less than that, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you've seen from Secretary Tillerson is, is I think, very belatedly, clearly a shift uh, in terms of like being more open to the press. He was like basically stonewalling uh, the the entire press corps for the first six to nine months of his tenure. Now he's giving interviews. He's showing uh, a more sophisticated and uh, uh, transparent side of himself. Uh, number one, that's important. He's also communicating more. Uh, part of the way you communicate to uh, both your own staff as well as to the world when you're Secretary of State, of course, is, is by working with the press. And so he he had sort of uh, disabled his own uh, uh, efforts to communicate a vision of what he was doing there, number one. Number two, he has walked back, as you said. There have been some excellent reports uh, in foreign policy and uh, Politico and elsewhere in recent weeks that he basically came in with this kind of corporate private sector guy. I'm going to, you know, redo all the boxes, bring in McKinsey and we'll, <laughs> you know, somehow make it all efficient. Uh, now it's, it's, it's of course, reduced to a much more modest reorganization. I, you know, frankly, to me, that was an astonishing rookie mistake. Everybody knows, uh, you know, if you come in and what you your first priority is to destroy the bureaucracy you're now in charge of, you know, that's uh, that's a risky uh, uh, political venture in Washington, especially when you had so many policy challenges on the plate with uh, President Trump. And then, of course, Tillerson still refused, or I think it was over the weekend, to call to um, when he was asked. Yes, he still he call, refuses to deny that, that he, he called, called him an effing moron. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's because it's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Is that a um, reassurance and honesty? Um, so who's going to be out first, McMaster or Tillerson? You know— or who the heck knows? Who the heck knows? I mean, that's part of why we're going to all be watching the Trump reality show, uh, uh, you know, season two. <laughs> it's hard not to watch. Well, let me turn back to one last thing before I wrap up. Did Ash Carter give you any idea of what the Russia war plan was going to be? Uh, you know, he he was not super forthcoming, except to make the point, in fact, that it was not uh, a rehash of tanks rolling through the Fulda Gap, a.k.a., uh, you know, circa 1984, that this was, uh, you know, that we needed a new approach to to a new age and that uh, uh, he saw it in both military but also politico-military terms, uh, addressing things, as he put it, like little green men, which are the sort of undercover but not really uh, uh, special forces troops that that Russia inserted into uh, Ukraine uh, and launched uh, helped launch the, the civil war there and, and helped take over Crimea. Uh, basically, he seems to be suggesting that an American version of hybrid warfare is is what we're looking at as a a full spectrum campaign against Russia. And then you know he just flagged two other things though. I said okay, but what what are Russia and China doing? That we are not doing. And I thought his answer there was very interesting. He said, well, in particular, China is really serious about technology investments that are going to change uh, uh, national security in a big way and that we're not really uh, playing in the way that we should. And he spotlighted quantum computing uh, and biotechnology, interestingly. That is interesting. Yeah. And quantum computing you hear a lot about. Yeah. But bio Biotech, not as much. And he, he referenced it a couple times. Interesting. Well, you can listen to that podcast of Susan speaking with Ash Carter on the Global Politico. Susan, thanks for joining us on the ER. Sarah, thank you. Until next time. 
You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Shelby Bostet. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.